0: All is well. That's an interesting intro to the story that I have to tell you, because have you ever been completely unprepared for something and you thought you were prepared for it? Back uh, when I was at the University of Colorado, um, after we had been in the program for three years, uh, working on the math background, uh, we had to take an oral comprehensive exam over an area of specialization. My area of specialization was number theory, And so I had taken three years of uh, graduate courses in number theory, and basically there was a committee of five professors, and I was going to have to stand in front of them, and they could literally ask me anything, and I had to come up with an answer. So in preparation for this, uh, a friend of mine who was also working on number theory, Amy and I, we spent the whole summer studying together. And we went through book after book after book, and we would put each other at the board, and we would just quiz each other and drill each other. And we went through all of the things that we could possibly imagine they were going to ask us, and we were set to go. And Amy scheduled her exam for Wednesday. I scheduled my exam for Thursday. We thought, this is going to be great, we're just going to knock it out. Amy went in on Wednesday, she took her exam, and she called me afterwards. She said it was exactly what we had studied. They asked me all of the questions we thought they would ask, and they ended right where the last book ended, It's going to be easy. You've got this. No problem. So I thought, awesome. I walked in in the room on Thursday morning, and they began the second half of Amy's test with me. They asked all the questions that they hadn't gotten to with Amy that were in books we hadn't even looked at. I was completely unprepared. Thankfully, they did go ahead and pass me. I, I was able to stumble my way through it enough. But I was unprepared for what they had for me. Have you ever been unprepared? It's not a pleasant feeling. It's not a good feeling. It's quite stressful, actually. We need to be prepared for Jesus. And as we anticipate Christmas, Christmas is in seven days. I don't know if you have a calendar that counts down or not, but this is your public service announcement. (laughs) We need to be prepared for Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke 1, and while you do that, I want to do our scripture memory verse of the week, or of the month, so you can be turning to Luke 1, and while you're turning there, let's look at 1 John 2.28, and will you say this with me? 1 John 2.28, and now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. First John two twenty eight. All right. The book of Luke. It's kind of a, a classic when it comes to Christmas. We're gonna be in Luke one today. We're gonna save Luke two for Christmas morning. Today we're gonna be in Luke one. And what I want you to see is what it looks like to be prepared for Jesus. We need to prepare our hearts. And in order to pre- prepare our hearts, we need to notice. That we live in a fallen world. We tend to be skeptical of God, but He will still use us even in our fallenness. And so we should humbly declare, as Mary did Behold the servant of the Lord. The book of Luke, written by Luke. So here is the, the news flash that some of you know and some of you maybe don't. Luke is not one of the disciples. We tend to think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they must have all been disciples, right? No. Luke is not one of the disciples. Luke was a physician who traveled with the Apostle Paul and decided to write down the events of Christ's time on earth in a very detailed way. Luke was an academic, a researcher, who went and did his research and wrote an academic paper that we have here. So, it's kind of cool because it's detail-oriented, and it shares very specific aspects of Christ's birth, his life on earth, his death, and his resurrection. So we're going to start with Luke 1, and we will start by just reading verses 5 through 17. Read along with me, Luke 1, 5 through 17. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zachariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. is that we live in a fallen world and the effects of sin are devastating. You see, the effects of sin are righteous. Look at the contrast that's made. In verse 5, it starts off by telling us that it was in the time of Herod. Now, historically, Herod is an interesting figure on the throne. Herod was an Edomite who was installed on the throne of Judea, by the Roman Senate, Basically, he bought his way to be king, paid enough money that they made him king. And he was known for being vicious, for being always nervous that he was going to be usurped. If you bought your way to be king, you're worried that someone else is going to replace you. And Caesar Augustus is known to have said, it would be safer to be Herod's pig than his relative. You see, a king of the Jews probably isn't going to eat a pig, but his relatives could usurp his throne, and he had them slaughtered. That's the sort of man that Herod the Great was. In contrast to Herod the Great, we see Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest. He belonged to the division of Abijah. The way the priests were set up at this time is they had 24 divisions of priests, and then within each division would be allowed to serve in the temple about two weeks out of the year. But there were so many priests that you only got to serve in the temple once in your lifetime. One time, and that was it. This was Zachariah's time. But... Zechariah is called righteous in the sight of the Lord, but notice the problem. Sin affects the godless and the righteous. Herod is godless, Zechariah is righteous. Herod kills his relatives, his descendants. Zechariah can't even have a descendant. We live in a fallen world, and the effects of sin are devastating. But even in the midst of this fallen world, God is at work. That's what I see in verses 8 through 15. In verses 8 through 15, we see events taking place. Zechariah's time has come. The lot has fallen upon him. He is going to get to serve his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to burn incense in the temple of the Lord. It doesn't get much better than this. For a priest, this is what they live for. That one and only opportunity they get To be close with God. Little did Zechariah know though that this wasn't just a mere opportunity to burn incense. This is something special. Something unique. How do we know that? Because an angel appears. This was not normal. Angels didn't normally appear when the priests were burning incense. In fact, the angel has a message for Zechariah. Elizabeth, will give birth to a son. Actually, it's an answer to Zachariah's prayer. That's what we learned in verse 13. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. God is at work. Even though we live in a fallen world and the effects of sin are devastating, God is at work. He heard your prayer, Zachariah. You are going to have a son. In fact, this son is going to cause many to rejoice. God is going to choose his name. God is at work, Zechariah. Yes, you live in a fallen world, but God's at work. In verses 16 and 17, what I see is the way that God is at work. Look at the promise made to Zechariah. This son... Is not going to be just any mere son. He's going to be one who will bring many of the people of Israel to the Lord. He is going to bring people to God because God, in His grace, calls His people to righteousness. We live in a fallen world where the effects of sin are devastating. And those effects are witnessed by both the righteous and the unrighteous. The world is fallen, but God's at work, and He calls His people to righteousness. So, let me give you an action step to start with here. As we think about this fallen world we live in, as we think of the fact that God's at work, will you prepare your heart? Will you prepare your heart for Jesus by admitting your fallenness? Admitting that you're in this fallen world and asking God to work within your heart. That's the first step. God is at work despite the fallenness. Israel was waiting eagerly for the Messiah. Zechariah was praying eagerly for his son. I suspect as a priest, Zechariah was praying eagerly for the Messiah and God in his goodness answer Zechariah's prayers. It's coming. I am still at work. Let's read on, though, in the story. Let's read verses 18 through 25. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you. And to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. For he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When this time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. He has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In verses 18 through 25, what I see is a need, a need that we all have. We need to recognize that we can be skeptical about God's work. Have you ever been skeptical of God's work? It's easy to do. Look at Zachariah's problem. In verses 18 through 20, Zechariah asks, on what basis can I know that this is true? Okay, so that'd be a more literal translation. I, I, our translation tends to take it a little bit easy on Zechariah. We tend to smooth things out. Zechariah in verse 18 really says, on what basis can I know that this is true? So I want you to understand what's going on. You see, there's a real temptation to question the validity of God's message. Zechariah has an angel standing before him. Okay, He's in the temple. He's burning incense to the God of the universe. The angel tells Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah looks at the angel and says, prove it. <laughs> Pretty skeptical. <laughs> that's questioning God. There's, that's nothing short of it. When we get to Mary, we're going to see Mary's question although it looks almost the same in the English, is actually very different. Mary asks a very different question. Zachariah asks the angel, prove it. So the angel says, okay, you won't speak anymore. I'll prove it. (laughs) I think we have a very real temptation, though, to be skeptical of God's work. Have you ever prayed for something and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and God answered it and you said, is that an answer? No, we have this tendency. Zechariah had this tendency. He had prayed for a son, and so why should he be surprised when God answers prayer? But we have a tendency to doubt God, to have a skepticism about God. If we are to prepare our hearts for Jesus, we need to recognize that tendency within us. We need to be prepared to listen to the message that God has for us. I think there is another contrast going on here. We have Zechariah, who says, prove it. And we have the people outside the temple. And notice what's going on here. Zechariah has entered the temple to burn the incense. Only one person's allowed in there, once in their lifetime. And he takes longer than he's supposed to. And the people start wondering, what's going on here? See, there's really only one reason that people typically took longer than they were supposed to take. And it wasn't a good reason. In fact, there are stories, um, Jewish fables or, or what they say would happen, that they would actually hang bells on the priest's garments and a rope around their leg. So that when the priest walked in to burn incense, you listened. And if that bell stopped ringing... Something was wrong and you pulled on the rope to pull the dead body out. That, that's at least the, the fable, the way it goes. Something is up here. The people are wondering what's going on. Well, Zechariah comes out and then they realize, okay, not what we thought. Something else has happened here. We need to be prepared to listen to the message that God has for us. And that's where the people were. They listened to Zechariah, not listened, watched as he made signs, and recognized God's at work. We should be quick to recognize that God's at work. Finally, though, we need to acknowledge that God is the source of blessing. So we've got Zechariah who says, prove it. We've got Elizabeth. And I want you to notice how Elizabeth handles this information, how Elizabeth responds to this pregnancy. Look at verse 25. Elizabeth says, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Elizabeth's proclamation is that the Lord has done this. Elizabeth could have come up with all sorts of alternative explanations. Have you ever done that? When God has worked and you say, well, let me try to come up with a different way this might have happened. Maybe God had nothing to do with this. I've done that. No, Elizabeth recognizes this was God who did this. We need to be ready to acknowledge God is the one at work. So let me give you an action step. Reflect over the past year. Okay, I know that today is not January 1st. But reflect over the past year. You can do it a few weeks early. How have you seen God at work? Take a minute. Think about it. How have you been able to see God working? Praise him for that work. God is at work. Even though we're in a fallen world, even though sin is rampant and the effects of sin are devastating, God's at work. Let's praise him for the way that he is at work. Praise him for what he's done this year. We're going to transition from Zechariah and Elizabeth now to the narrative of Mary. And I want you to see what happens with Mary as we make this transition. So let's read verses 26 to 33. In Luke 1, starting in verse 26, it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. What I want you to recognize out of this is that we need to, we must recognize that in our fallen state, Our fallen state is still something God can use. It's still something God can use for His work. We need to recognize that our fallenness is still useful to God. He can use it for His work. Look at Mary's qualifications. I want you to catch something important, really important, in verses 26 through 28. Mary's qualifications do not include sinlessness. No matter what someone may tell you, nothing in the Bible tells us Mary was sinless. Mary was just as much a sinner as you and I. Her qualifications do not include sinlessness. Actually, it's, it's striking. How were Zachariah and Elizabeth described earlier? righteous in the sight of the Lord. They weren't sinless, but they were described as righteous. Mary is not described as righteous. No. Mary's qualification was quite simply, she had not had sexual contact with a man. Theologically, we could get into the details, into the weeds, of why that was an important qualification for Mary. We're not going to go there today. I'm happy to talk about it with you afterward if you want to go into that theological conversation. What I want you to recognize is that her qualifications had nothing to do with being sinless. Mary was a fallen sinner, just like you, just like me, but willing to submit to God. In fact, Mary's qualifications had everything to do with God nothing to do with Mary, and everything to do with God. Mary's qualifications to be part of God's work had everything to do with grace. Look at what the angel says to her in verses 29 through 30. Mary is greatly troubled. She's trying to figure out what is going on. Because the angel said, greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary is wondering what in the world is going on. In verse 30, the angel says, you have found favor with God. Favor is a translation of the word charis that we translate as grace. Mary's qualification had everything to do with God bestowing grace on her. Grace has a broad definition, but broadly defined, it's unmerited favor. Not earned, unearned. Mary had done nothing to deserve God's work in her life. God had done everything to call Mary to that work. God had given the grace. God had provided. Mary had found grace is not earned. Mary's qualifications had everything to do with God. In fact, Mary's qualifications to be part of God's work we're really in order to serve God's purpose. And that's the whole point. This chapter is not about Mary. This section is not about Mary. It is about God and his work and his use of a fallen human. Look at verses 31 through 33. What we see is what God's purpose in this entire chapter, section, book, New Testament, the whole universe God's purpose, Mary would miraculously conceive. I want you to understand, look at what Zechariah was told. Elizabeth will bear you a son. Elizabeth would bear a son for Zechariah. Look what Mary's told. Mary is not told you will bear a son for Joseph. No, Mary would bear a son for God, for God's purpose. The child would be named by God, not Mary. It's not about Mary. He would be great. John was told was said to be great before the Lord. If you go back to chapter, earlier in the chapter, John was said John will be great before the Lord. Jesus would be great. Tautologically, absolutely great. He'd be called the son of the most high. He would inherit David's throne be the king of Israel, have an eternal kingdom. In short, this isn't about Mary. This is about God and his work. We need to recognize that in our fallen state, God can use us for his work. No matter who you are, no matter how devastating sin might have been or might be now in your life, God can use you for his work. So, let me give you an action step. I want you to take a minute and consider how God might use you. The fact that God can use you. Take a minute and consider the fact that God can use you for his work. How might God be calling you to serve him right now? Because no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, god can use you let's move on to verses 34 through 38 how will this be mary asked since i am a virgin the angel answered the holy spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you so the holy one to be born will be called the son of god even elizabeth your relative is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me fulfilled. Then the angel left her. We need to recognize that our ultimate role is as servants of the Lord. Being a servant of God means giving everything even your future. Look at Mary's question. How will this be? Compare that to Zachariah. Remember, what was Zachariah's question? How can I know? Prove it. Mary's question is a little bit different. Mary says, "Um, I don't think I'm qualified to bear a child. I have not done the prerequisites. Okay, It's a good question. How can this be? But it's actually an even better question than we might initially think. You see, in this day and age, a young woman's future was fundamentally tied to her ability to get married in a pure state and bear children. So we need to understand that Mary's asking a really good question. She's saying, I have not done the prerequisite steps, I have kept myself pure, not only does this create a problem because I haven't done the prerequisites, but this actually, you are asking me to give up my future. You see, a woman who bore a child out of wedlock in this day would have essentially been limited to one job, a job of promiscuity from then on. This is future changing for Mary. And so she says, how can this be? She doesn't say, how can I know? She doesn't say, no, thank you. How can this be? How is this going to work out? The angel gives her the answer, God. Real simple answer, right? The Sunday school answer? Okay, this is the answer that the kids hate when the teacher gives it, and the the kid asks, how did this miracle take place? Well, God did it. But that's actually the answer that the angel gives. God's going to do it. But the angel gives another piece of information. See, the angel reminds Mary that being a servant of God means looking for how God is at work around you and being prepared to accept his work through you. Because the angel tells Mary something important, and this is an important lesson for all of us to learn. God rarely calls on one person to do everything alone. God often calls on people to serve together. And while nobody ever had experienced what Mary was going through, or will ever experience what Mary is going through, Elizabeth was in a similar position, bearing a child in her old age. And God tells Mary, Your cousin Elizabeth will walk this path with you. God doesn't ask us to do it alone. God tells Mary, look around. There's Elizabeth. She will walk this path with you. In her old age, she is born a child. If you read on in the text this week, you see that Mary goes to Elizabeth and spends the time with Elizabeth. But before we get to that, look at verse 38. Being a servant of God means giving one answer when you're called. I don't like the NIV translation here, because I just feel like it doesn't quite capture it. One answer is, behold the servant of the Lord. When God calls, just as Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me, The right answer to God's call is, Behold, look, God, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Mary accepts the responsibility, accepts the truth of what she's been told, accepts the sufficiency of what she's been told. I'd have asked a million more questions. I want you to also notice something else that I had never noticed before until this week. The angel leaves, If I had been doing this, I'd have told the angel to stick around and, you know, help out a little bit. No, God in his wisdom allows Mary to bear this burden with a fellow human, Elizabeth. The angel leaves. Mary is allowed the opportunity to bear this with just another human, Elizabeth. Elizabeth but it's an opportunity that God gives her. So my action step is actually really simple. Step out, boldly step out, and declare, behold the servant of the Lord.